John Hurt told me that he had been in New York in the 20s, like 26, for his recordings. They brought him up there to record. And he said he met Bessie Smith. So we were sitting, it was interesting, we were sitting at a table, I was sitting at a table with him in this club. And uh, they gave him a cup of coffee. And he looks, he looks at me, points to the bowl of sugar cubes in the middle of the table. He says, you think they's mines if I took one of those sugar cubes? Wow. Because he was fresh off of the plantation. He, he did not know. He did not know. Welcome, everyone, to the Hot Jazz Network podcast. I'm your host, George Cole. Today, our very special guest is the one and only Eric Schoenberg, proprietor of Schoenberg Guitars and the Dean of Acoustic Guitars in America. Let's take a ride out to Riverside Drive to a place before your mom and dad were alive. We'll roll down the block. Eric, how are you? Great. Doing good. How are you? It's good to see you. Now, I've been to your shop a million times, but um, where, where am I calling? Do you live nearby there? I'm at home right now. You're at home? Okay. Yes. Store's closed today. I, I assume that's in Marin County, that you reside in Marin County. Yes, in Tiburon. Let's go all the way back to the beginning. So where were you born? New York, if they say. New York. You're, New you're York. a New Yorker. Why did I not know that? And uh, we're talking Manhattan or one of the... Yeah, okay. Second Avenue in the 20s. Beth Israel Hospital. So man, maybe there's a plaque there. <laughs> <laughs> there are plaques there, but nothing about me. <laughs> okay, and, and so, you, so you're born in New York. What did your father do what, for a, a living? He was a social worker. A variety of jobs during the year, a psychological social worker. And then he was assistant director of a house for unwed mothers. And then he was the editor of publications for the Jewish child welfare, something or other agency. Okay. And he was a player, but not much. Oh, he actually played. Yeah, and, and and how about your your mother? Did was she what in in what we now call a, um, a homemaker or housewife, or did she work outside the home? No, she was at home. She's because there were four of us. I guess we were more than a full time job. <laughs> you, you needed you needed some attention. And what was yeah. the atmosphere like in the house? Was there was there music playing, or were there people playing instruments? That my father was musical, and, and he, he, was, he loved piano, classical piano, when he had started. But he said during the Depression, they couldn't afford the lessons. He never really played then, but he had his radio going all the time. So, and, and what was the music that was being played on, on the radio? Classical piano. Classical piano, so it wasn't the jazz sounds. Yeah. 
brother was was into bluegrass. He played guitar and mandolin. That might have been what first got me going, having him play music. That, that's how did you know that was my next question? What was the first thing that you heard that really got you excited about this music thing? And wow, this is for me. I love music. What was that experience? Before that, I was in playing clarinet in the band and then playing in the orchestra and taking uh, lessons. My brother was playing guitar, and I think that was much more interesting to me than the clarinet, actually. I sold the clarinet via banjo. I played the oboe, and those double reed instruments are brutal. It, it, doesn't, right. so, it doesn't sound like you made a, too much of a friend of the clarinet. Yeah. And uh, how did you get much into the oboe? I did it for a couple of years in, in, in high school because they needed an, an oboist. I, I well, thought the sound was beautiful. You know, yeah. the oboe and bassoon, it, it's a truly right. a, a wonderful sound. But I, you know, rock and roll was calling and, and the guitar yeah. was calling. And I, I played accordion. But I played from kindergarten up until around fifth or sixth grade. And I just didn't think it was cool anymore. Now I think it's super cool. And I, and I yeah. want to, I want to get a nice Italian accordion. And I'm also fascinated with the button accordion, which I understand has a few variations. And then there's also the bandonion, which is also a whole nother thing. The accordion is like a mini orchestra. And I think for me that it was a great way because you're playing the bass you're playing the melody in the chords and you're pumping the thing. It's it's a great way to get involved in music because you're the whole damn band. Right. In in your guitar journey, was there a guitar that you heard initially that made you want to become the, the Eric Schoenberg that we know today? Somebody that knows a lot about guitars and buys and sells them and plays them. Of course, the most important part, playing. Well, it was the mid-50s then. And I, so I was part of this baby boomer folky thing. My first album I ever bought was Nula City Ramblers first album. And we had a vast bunch of people, friends who were doing it at all. I think before that it was summer camp. The people teaching guitar were Winnie Winston, who's an incredible great banjo player, not alive anymore. And Josh Rifkin, who ended up being the man who really put out Scott Joplin in ragtime on piano. Hmm. He's a, a classical musician. But back then he was a guitar player, folk singer, and it was quite a great beginning. Did you know David Grisbin back there, or did you meet him only years later? A little bit later, maybe just three years later. This is, I lived in New Jersey, and I was going into New York to the... Mark Silver had a shop in the village, and it was a sort of a center for all... It was also connected to the Folklore Center. Yeah, I've heard, I've heard tale of the Folklore Center and... Gertie's Music City, right? places like that. These are a little before me, but also it just sounds like a really 
cool scene for young people to get involved in. And that, that sounds like that's what happened to you. So now the rock and roll explosion never had a big impact on you. You always liked the folk and the bluegrass. And then later I'm into jazz. Yeah. The blues and maybe more than bluegrass. I couldn't play fast enough to do the blue bluegrass. Yeah, bluegrass is a thing, and the, the evolution of the guitar style of bluegrass is really interesting to me. It seems that the virtuosity in bluegrass was all about first. The, I understand now at this late date that it's also primarily a vocal and storytelling music, and then Bill Monroe was such a great mandolin player. Then comes the the virtuosity on the banjo with Scruggs, Earl Scruggs, right. and and then. Later, much later, came the guitar and Doc Watson, Tony Rice, Clarence White. Is there anybody George, else? Who? George Shuffler, back, Stanley Brothers. He did the cross picking. It was very simple, but it was beautiful. When you say the blues now, I'm guessing that the acoustic blues, not the electric right. Chicago blues. That's what you're referring to when you say that you love the blues. So it's a finger picking thing. Actually, and as opposed to the, the lead guitar kind of flat picking electric blues. I had a great influence back then was a teacher named David Cohen, who um, much later became part of Country Joe and the Fish. Oh, wow. And he's a quite a great blues pianist. Still, he's performing and playing a whole lot even now. But he was a great guitar player and a really good teacher. So, so he taught me blues. He started off with just hitting one bass note. Yeah. So, so, so you're in love with bluegrass, but not thinking that's going to be the way forward. And then you're learning, learning some great blues and hearing some great recordings. And you had a wonderful teacher. And what, what about the jazz? When did the jazz be, um, begin to take hold? Much more recently, I got into ragtime, playing the rags, Scott Joplin, et cetera, and because my cousin, Dave Lehman, was the pioneer of rags on guitar, actually. Oh, and wow. he, way back, uh, around 1960, I guess, he wanted to record his rags. And so he asked me to play second guitar. For the recording, I spent, I, it must have been a couple of years working with him. And I learned a whole lot more music from him. And that sort of the beginnings of a jazz thing. A lot of theory and pretty amazing, but quite an amazing player. And, um, is, is he still with us or no longer? He is. Oh, wow. He's got, lives in Brooklyn. Lives in Brooklyn. Wow. Yeah. What? Which did you hear first? Tiny Tim singing Tiptoe Through the Tulips or Nick, or Nick Lucas? I'm a, a huge Nick Lucas fan. It's just a lot of people know about Django these days and a lot of people know about Eddie Lang. And I believe in Italy they have, a, they have an Eddie Lang festival. But Nick Lucas, to me, gets short shrift. But no, which one did you hear first, Tiny Tim or Nick Lucas? Nick Lucas. I had, I had a friend, Hoyle Osborne, way back, 
gave me a tape. He has some old 78s. And he gave me, he just put together a tape of the most amazing music, which included a couple tunes from uh, Nick Lucas. And and, and Tiptoe Through the Tulips was one. And the other was, um, what's it called? It was by far the better tune. Painting the Clouds with Sunshine. The version he gave me of a 78 I have not heard anywhere else. It's much nicer. Uh, later on, I guess it was a big tune for him that we recorded it a few times after that, but, but with uh, other players and stuff. I think the original was from a movie or a video clip, and which I've not seen, but it's a fabulous tune. It's a, that kind of stuff. Those two tunes were, may have been the first beginnings of jazz for me and for everybody else too actually i don't think you could have had a better introduction i'm such a a nick lucas fan and as i scour the internet in particular youtube for clips a lot of those clips were from movies or they're very well done performance clips it seems like he's singing live in most of them and everybody focuses on on nick's um, great guitar playing I, I was speaking to Matt Munisteri, who we hope to have on the podcast very soon, in your oh, shop just uh, the other day. We we're talking about Nick Lucas, and he and I said, I just don't even know where that guitar style comes from. It's like he dropped down from another planet. And Matt correctly pointed out that it was the, the Italian guitar tradition. Yeah, the, or also mandolin and whatever, mandocello, whatever instruments they have, with that kind of picking technique. It's not, this is not cross picking. This is a lot of downstroke. It's the way you would play an oud or gypsy guitar, the downstrokes, the heavy rest strokes, and also playing near the bridge, trying to produce as much volume as you possibly can. And of course, people don't play like that anymore because on the electric guitar, you don't really have to do that. Yeah. And I think I did see the video. He's serenading, he's in the bushes underneath some woman's window. No, that, that's a fantastic clip. And the thing about Nick Lucas, he was pretty long-lived when he was 72. Yeah. He was on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, and I believe this was in 1969, and he performed Rose-Colored Glasses and Tiptoe Through the Tulips live on The Tonight Show, and he still was in full possession of his vocal and guitar skills because right. Tiny Tim probably wanted him there because that was his big influence. Yeah, see, when I was growing up, I knew none of this. I just um, became aware of this guy named Tiny Tim, and I thought he was funny. I didn't know that it was almost a form of performance art, but that he was a huge fan and kind of a scholar in his own way of that older music, of that old jazz that I like. He was actually kind of a conduit or a bridge between generations because he loved this music. His, the way he presented it may not have been for everyone, but he was sincere, I believe, in the fact that he did love that music very much. Possibly. But unfortunately, he came across as a parody, almost. That's right. Accident. And he may have done more to hurt the music as well. Yeah, a lot of people think so. A lot of people think so. When you mention Tiptoe Through the Tulips, people laugh. But it's That's a good right. tune. No, it's a good tune. And Nick Lucas's version of it is... I'd put it up there with anything and Tiny Tim 
I know. I think he was just so eager to make it in show business that he was willing to make quite a spectacle of himself. And if you think about it, his act was pretty, pretty silly. But again, I think that he actually loved that, that music. Weird guy. That's for sure. I understand he was like the biggest star, at least early on in his career. He was like the, the main guy. He was huge. We're talking Nick now. Oh, yeah. There was nobody else. And people still talk about the Nick Lucas celluloid picks. The Nick Lucas guitar model is, is fantastic. I don't know what makes it so great. Other than the guitars were very handmade back then. I realized that there were 12, 13, and 14 fret iterations of the new Nick Lucas model. But correct me if I'm wrong. He was also the first guitar player to have a signature model. At least in this country, I've, that's what I've heard. But then, as great as he was, or as original, I mean, then Eddie Lang came along. And that was powerful competition, at least for musical quality. Eddie Lang and Joe Venuti, that was pretty incredible. That might be the first real jazz for me. And then the stuff they did, like, uh, Boswell Sisters, I loved. I still do. That's with him on guitar, usually. And there was also Dick McDonough. Alan Roos. Was he back then in the 20s? I think he came a little bit later, but Dick McDonough. And definitely, I, I'm not that well listened on him. The name keeps popping up, so I'm going to have to do, as the millennials say, a deep dive on anyway. Dick and find out more about him. But Eddie Lang, that everybody talks about Django. And of course, Django has his rightful place in the firmament. And there's so much to latch on to with Django. The little mustache, World War II, Paris, but just all of it. The fact that he's an illiterate gypsy, but he's a genius. But Eddie Lang really laid the groundwork for what came later. He's a wonderful rhythm player. And his lead lines, if you hear him on those old Bing Crosby recordings, he's just, as the kids would say, he's just shredding on the guitar, but it's mixed kind of low on the recordings with Bing. And I think that Bing really loved the guitar because later his collaboration with Les Paul on It's Been a Long Time with the two choruses of guitar solo, that's pretty fantastic. But I think that goes all the way back to Eddie Lang. He just adored Eddie's playing. Sure, there's something very beautiful about his playing. And it makes me feel that those guys had things that we don't think they were doing that stuff first take all the time, live recordings. Isn't and, that amazing? Yeah, no no overdubs, no auto-tune, no we'll fix it I, in the mix. <laughs> and he was keeping up with, all, with whole bands, really. He was the first jazz guitar player in a band and it was acoustic i know but also his solo guitar pieces are, are so incredibly virtuosic and so well played and so strong now what was eddie's with their several choices of instruments there was a, maybe a round hole then became the l4 then the l5 or can you fill us in on what the history is of the instruments that he may have played he started off i think with a regal I think is what it was. And I, I'm not sure, but I think there's photos of uh, Nick Lucas playing something like that before he got his Gibson. 
So uh, Regal, the brand Regal, which is lost to the annals of time for for most of us, that was a that was that a like a a round hole acoustic with a trapeze tailpiece on it or no? It was round hole with a bridge and with a regular bridge. Okay. And pin. I mean, they also ended up making a lot of. They made thousands of instruments. Of a lot of it was under the name of Washburn. Lion Healy was the company, and they sold the guitar part of the of the business to the Tonk Brothers. There was somebody in between as well, but the Tonk Brothers took over. They didn't make anything. They had guitars made. Most of their stuff, I think, was made by Regal. We're a big factory in Chicago. And I think that Regal made other instruments as well, or just guitars? Oh, yeah. They made mandolins and banjos and all that kind of stuff. Lion Healy was famous for its harps. They made, and they, that's the part they kept, I believe. They sold off the guitar, mandolin, business, banjo to Regal. Okay. All right. So Eddie and Nick are playing, um, playing Regals. And then there's a transition, I think, probably with Nick Lucas first. Nick Lucas is, he has, a, he's playing some Gibsons, and then they rightfully give him a signature model. And then Eddie, just a little bit later, coming down a, a, a similar but different track, he's playing the first F hole guitars, would you say? The, were those made yeah. for Gibson and Eddie? That was for the L5s. It, matter of fact, his second guitar, the first one I, I've heard it was stolen, which was an earlier one with the dot inlays. And then he was the first person really to make these famous. And I played his guitar as a friend of mine owns it, bought it from Eddie's wife. And he left the original strings on, which are cables. <laughs> I, if that was mine, I would very carefully... T I have some of Django Reinhardt's old guitar strings on a guitar that he used for a tour of Belgium. When I bought the instrument, I got a nice handwritten letter from the son saying how the Django had used his father's guitar for a tour of Belgium, and here's the old string. So I have those. I don't know what I'm going to do with them, but I do have them. But if I had Eddie's guitar with the original string, I would very carefully take them off and string it with something that I could actually use. Right. But, now, but what do you? What kind of strings were those guys using back then? I don't. They weren't using flat one. They were using bronze, probably. Yeah, I think probably just the 8020s, I think. I'm not sure, though. But the, the thing was, they were using heavy gauge, and the action was high. And that's how he was able to, he had most incredibly powerful hands. He would have able. to. And he's punching those strings. Yeah. Hitting hard just to, because he had to cut through. Volume was the order of the day back then, and that's why the, the banjo was so popular. But as guitars gained popularity and the, the structure of the guitar, and the, from my understanding, you, you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but the, the bronze string kind of changed everything. The guitars, the bracing and the tops and everything is getting to a point. And then with the evolution of the bronze string, all of a sudden, guitars are loud and the notes last longer. Exactly. And the F holes at the same time on a carved top were also punching 
that's a, a way to get a guitar tone that cuts and punches out. You know that you have that high bridge and the F holes. Someone said to me once that F holes are like when you take a hose, if you were to squeeze the, the end of the hose, make it smaller, the water comes out much faster in a smaller stream. It goes further. And that's a description of the sound coming out of an F hole. Yeah, I can definitely hear that. Like it, it sounds punched out. Definitely. And so what do you string your guitars with that you're like your personal L5 right there? Is that bronze or do you go flats? No, I do bronze. And I like the 80-20 bronze. Most people use the phosphor bronze. And I just use light gauge because I'm not playing like Eddie. I'm playing with my fingers. Light gauge being 12s or 11s? Yeah, 12s. 12 seem to be it. If I go any lower for me on... Any lower than 12, so I just don't, I'm not getting enough. It's you not going to work, right? I don't it's think not, it's it. not going to work. It's not going to make the top vibrate. It's just not going to happen. But in anything heavier, friends of mine, 14, you know, on the E string, 18, yeah, yeah. on the B string, it's, I'm a labella guy. And so labella sends me strings, but um, I, I can't use the 14 and the 18. I just, it's just no. a bit. It's a bit much for me. I, I I like to do a little vibrato and to to man manhandle the chords, and I can't do it with. The, I wonder what Eddie used back in the olden days. I don't know. Maybe it was Gibson. Then there was Mapes. It was a heavy gate. I don't in the South anyway. It was uh, a popular string, and Gibson came in the Manel strings came in. Actually, there it is, Manel, Gibson strings. I don't know how early they went in the orange box. Okay, so interesting, fun factoid here. I started playing with Dave, David Dog Grisman in 2014 up until the pandemic. Tony Rice is one of my predecessors in that group, and so we're all in love with Tony Rice's playing and his sound. I found out that he used Manel strings, so I ordered a couple sets and and I I put one on my guitar. Actually, it was um, David Grisman's guitar, the intro, the Triple O twenty eight that that he loves so much. It's, I think it's a thirty three or thirty two. And um, so I put the Manel strings. And then at the rehearsal, I didn't say anything. I just started playing. He goes, "You got Manel strings on there, don't you?" He, he could tell. And the next time I was speaking to the band's manager. Craig Miller, he says, yeah, I don't know about those Manel strings. I don't think Dog likes them either. So it was a big thing. They did not like Manel strings. How do you see the Manel? And for people that aren't guitar players, we apologize. We're getting pretty geeky here. <laughs> but the Manel strings, what is it about them? What are they? I think that they have less body in the sound. It's more of a, a middle range, which might punch out or big fat sounding dreadnought might sound better because it, it would uh, block out the muddiness with uh, Manel strings. That's an interesting theory. What I tell mu music students is that if you've got a tinny guitar, a tinny sounding guitar, you put some rich sounding strings. And if you've got a rich sounding guitar, put the, the tinnier sounding strings on it so it balances it out and it's not too dark. Maybe that's what was going on with Tony Rice, but what is Manel? Do you know what that means? Is that part of the manufacturing process? Or I don't know. 
All I know is it's a different color. And I'm not sure if they are would work with pickups. That might be a factor because they look like the old nickel strings. But I don't know what the makeup is. Well, speaking of pickups, so that that's a huge revolution. I know that people were amplifying the the arch top style guitar and acoustic guitar a long time ago, but it really came in. Is that is are we talking nineteen thirty nine with the Charlie Christian Blade pickup? Is that your understanding? Earlier, the Charlie Christian, I think, was not sure when it started, but it was a little bit earlier than thirty nine, I think. And as far as I know, I mean, that was the first Charlie Christian. He wasn't the very first. It was Eddie, somebody who played electric guitar before Charlie Christian. Wow. I should, maybe could find that out. But those blade pickups that, that we now call the Charlie Christian pickup, they seem to work so well. You know, I went, I don't know if I told you this, but I went last week to Keys Jazz Bistro and I, we saw Bruce Foreman who has Barney Kessel's old 46. I think it's an L5 with a cutaway. Super 4. Super 4 with a cutaway. And yeah, it looks big. And then it's got the it's got the blade pickup, which was Barney's old pickup. Bob Barney Kessel was a huge Charlie Christian acolyte, and so he got a hold of one of those pickups. Or maybe it was Charlie's old pickup because they had communicated with Charlie and Barney had communicated when Barney was still a very young teenager. But he went to see Charlie when he played around the town because I believe they were both from Oklahoma. I'm not exactly yeah. sure of my head. I don't have a bunch of bullet points here, but I probably should. But when I saw Bruce, who's an unbelievably great player, he's a modernist for me because I tend to like the older styles of jazz, but the pickup was making some noise. He said he has a device which cancels out the hum, but I believe that's... Yeah. Yeah, but I believe that uh, that, that's been a real problem with those picks. It's like Leo Fender with the Telecaster. He got the plank guitar just right out of the box, and it's just with that blade pickup, the first pickup, they got it right. It's just noise. The only problem is the noise. And uh, they sound great. And the quality of sound is pickups since then haven't sounded as good except for the noise. But you <laughs> can talk when you do your podcast with Matt Ministeri. Yes. He, he has a, a Gibson Charlie Christian. That's, so he uses. Nice. Yep. And he. He can tell you, he, he was telling me just to change the gauges of the string just to get the balance right. Because there's no way to balance the individual strings with that pickup. I think when you have one of those kind of pickups, or I've had some other um, magnetic pickups, you, you have to, it takes you a while to realize, oh, the G string is not coming across as well. And so you can make some changes with the string gauges and stuff. Yeah, I think that Matt, who I met for the first time at your shop just the other day, that when he plays with Catherine Russell, he uses that very guitar that, that you're talking oh. about with, with the um what 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 is the name of that actual pickup? Most of us call it a Charlie Christian pickup. Does it have another name or just a blade? I don't pickup? know. That's the only name I know. The guitar was the ES one fifty, I think. And wasn't there another one that they did a slightly fancier model, a 250? He had, right. And he, and Charlie had, at some point, it was a white finish, I think, a fancier one. 
that he had. So he, he went through a couple of them, my guess. There's one over uh, 150. There's one over at Subway Guitars. Fat Dog has one. And he wanted me to buy the guitar and become the steward of that guitar. But I never um, jumped on it. So I would probably get a guitar built and have a um, have that kind of pickup in it so I could have modern playability. And not those guitars were not known for being fan. Like your L5 is a beautiful work of art. But the 150s, that, that was not a top-of-the-line guitar. Right. We're really nicely shaped on a lot of those. It has That's the wider facing that I love, at least the earlier ones. So yeah. I sold one in my shop and then regretted it. <laughs> Seller's remorse. Do you, do you get a lot of electric guitar players coming in your shop, or, or is it mostly people? Oh, yeah, a lot. There's that guy, George Cole. He plays electric at times. <laughs> it's how it's, it's so I, I have an orchestra. I have a big band, and so it's it takes me back to the very roots of that battle. It's just how are you going to be heard in a large ensemble with drums and all those horns? if you're playing a somewhat acoustic instrument. So it is a real problem. And yeah. you can see I, that was so brilliant, the 150 guitar and, of course, Charlie Christian and the blade pickup there, then problem solved. But the amp was not that powerful that they paired it with, the Gibson amp, and, of course, it broke up. And now people love that sound very much. They also love Django's electric sound, which I appreciate Django's later work, like the Rome recordings, and there's people that go to great lengths <laughs> to replicate that sound, the breaking up of the amp. And it's uh, the same thing with Charlie Christian. It's just his guitar was breaking up a little bit, but people have come to love that sound. I don't even know if that's what he wanted, but that's what he got. They, there was that incredible cut of uh, um, Stardust with, with Goodman's band. One of the first times I was... Listening to it, I heard the saxophone take a break. The sax guy in it just was an incredible sound. I thought it was a guitar. And that's because the uh, sound of that amp and that pickup had that same similar kind of fat, rough. What I don't know what, what word you'd use, but it had a beautiful kind of quality to it that's not clean like a humbucker or anything. It's very rich and beautiful sound. Yeah, it's funny. I was talking to Bruce Foreman. We did the podcast la last week. There'll be folks that'll be airing pretty soon. But we were talking about, for my tastes on, on electric arch top guitar, many people have that kind of slurpy kind of sound. I'm just a more modern kind of tone. The notes are bleeding into one another. I'm not a big fan of that. I, I do like the articulation that you get on some of those older arch top with the pickup combinations. And um, there, there's quite a few other pickups besides the blade pickup. Um, I'm blanking on the names right now. What are some of the ones that we would retrofit on an arch top guitar? The Armand pickup. Yeah, of course, the Armand. I have that on my L4, and I think it sounds really good. Like an acoustic guitar with a different kind of tone, in a way. It's just really nice. 
That's what lots of people use. I remember I brought that student of mine into your shop, and I think he did that. He got the the Epiphone, that beautiful Epiphone Emperor from you, and then he um, he ordered the pickup. He ordered. I told him what kind of dearmament to get. I was blanking on the name there for a second. Put it on his guitar. That guitar, you got to hit it hard. You need some strength in your hands, and a lot of people don't have that. And so that's consequently a lot of people like playing a Telecaster with nines on it. Which you can still get a beautiful sound out of, but it's quite different, isn't it? I can't imagine a jazz player playing nines. That's for all the bending and the rock and roll things, right? Yeah, so I, you know who Joel Selvin is? The writer. He used to write for the Chronicle for many years. He's written a lot of books on rock and roll. I played in a band briefly with his wife, Keita, at the time. He was a big James Burton, Ricky Nelson fan and he explained to me from his interviews with james burton that james was the first guy to um so you take you get a regular set of strings with the wound g which now i I have to have a wound g and george harrison from the beatles he played his whole career with the wound g i guess that's just what he was used to yeah and then so with you'd get a set of old-fashioned strings with the wound g You'd move every string over one string, so your A would now become your low E. And then James Burton, those were banjo strings uh-huh. that he put on the top three strings of any guitar. You know, if you remember that TV show, Ozzy and Harriet, that with Ricky, their son Ricky Nelson. I've seen the old clips, and James Burton is playing a beautiful new guitar every week, Fender Jaguar early fenders and Rickenbackers, all kinds of stuff. But apparently he had a, a real proclivity and propensity for using the banjo strings so he could bend them. A lot of people don't even know that they're playing on banjo strings because you can't, bend, you can't bend that wound G. You just, you just can't do it. It's, I've certainly tried. And when you bend it, even if you have the strength, the muscle to bend it, it doesn't sound right. So you can think of it like the, the Chuck Berry licks and uh, Johnny be good. He's doing a half step bend. The, the whole step bend came later when people were using the banjo strings. But Chuck is doing the half step bends. And what what did you think of all that stuff when it got first popular? So you're into Nick Lucas, you're into bluegrass, you're into Eddie Lang. Uh, I shouldn't say Nick Lucas, but you're more into Eddie Lang yeah. and, and the blues. And then when you so when you heard Chuck Berry and stuff like that, did that not resonate with you, or just for uh, that was yeah. for other people, or? Yeah, there was a lot of, <laughs> I was ignorant. So I used to think that all of rock and roll was a heavier A chord. That like, and then you go to the D chord. <laughs> so just that chord all over and over. The Beatles turned my head totally. And, and I think I started, that, and the Stones, and that got me listening to the older stuff and Chuck Berry is just like an old great old blues and then yeah, you that's how I hear it yeah you hear Big Bill Brunzi he did a lot of different kinds of stuff not just his blues records and he was a beginning as into the world of jazz I think he was accompanying singers as a studio musician and that turned my ear a whole lot he was a great guitar player. Yes, he was. Um, very well known in the UK. 
and all right. it's funny that the the British guitarists they all um you hear interviews with any of those guys the Peter Framptons the Mark Knopflers the David Gilmore's they all know about Django and they all know about Big Bill Brunzi and, and some th- those guys got very popular over there Django because he uh, toured in England a lot and Big Bill Brunzi because the the records made their way okay. he toured over there a lot he even had a I think it was uh, Swedish or something, a girlfriend there for when he toured out there. So they know, there, and there's a couple men and a wife who were friends of his and have written a bunch about him. I forget names, but he, no, he was there a lot. All the players, the black jazz players early on who went to Europe, they thought, Plus, they didn't get the attention that they deserved over here. It was no, less of a racial divide they, in Europe. They wanted to stay. They wanted to stay there. It, they were treated with respect, and they had had an audience. Definitely. How about Lead Belly? Was he an influence on, on you? Did you like his? Oh, sure. You wonderful. Definitely. He was just such a, a fountain of of music. He um, apparently. His life, some, somebody should do a movie if there hasn't been a movie yet, because that guy li- lived several lives in, in his time. He spent a good deal of time in prison, whether justly or unjustly incarcerated. But he knew th- apparently thousands of songs. You could just put him in front of a microphone, and he. a lot of people still don't know whether he wrote a certain song or he was just, just performing it, but apparently he was just a huge font of songs and somebody like Pete Seeger, I think assisted him. I've heard other people say that, that Pete ripped him off. I don't think that that's the case. I think that, oh. that, that Pete was very instrumental in him getting a wider audience and also being able to collect royalties. And, and he was very, like a lot of people, he, he was just very influenced by the whole 12 string, but by Led Billy. And I think Lead Belly started off as a lead boy for Blind Lemon Jefferson. And Blind Lemon Jefferson is a fascinating blues. He's like the first recorded blues guy. And he's, that's very sophisticated. That's like jazz guitar. What year would that have been, the, the Blind Lemon Jefferson recordings? Oh, man. Is sometime in the 30s. I'm not sure. And how, Those, about, Robert, how about Robert he, Johnson? Does he, does he predate Robert Johnson? I believe so. Yes. Pretty Robert, sure. Yeah, Robert Johnson gets all the glory and he get, everybody speaks about him. But Blind Lemon. You've heard of a guy named Skip James? Oh, sure. I even met him once. Actually, when he was getting his P-28 at the Volkler Center in New York. He's amazing. What, what, year, what year was that? Oh, that might have been like 63, 62. I met a lot of these old guys. I, I met John Hurt. And it, I think it was some of his first performances. There was a black a club called the Olymp- Olympia or something like that in a black section of D.C. where they brought P-28 
people like him to introduce them to white, the white world. And he told me, John Hurt told me that he had been in New York in the twenties, like 26 for his recordings. They brought him up there to record. And he said he met Bessie Smith. So we were sitting, it was interesting. We we're sitting at a table. I was sitting at a table with him in this club and uh, they gave him a cup of coffee and he looks, he looks at me, points to the bowl of sugar cubes in the middle of the table. He says, you think they'd minds if I took one of those sugar cubes? Wow. Because he was fresh off of the plantation. He, he did not know. He did not know. How about Jimmy Rogers, the singing brakeman? Did that have any, or was that before your time? Or was that something that wasn't part of the conversation when you were growing up? No, his, he was, he recorded the same day, I believe, as the Carter family. It was like the first recordings in country music. And, uh, no, you can't miss him. And it's wonderful. He was just incredible. And I've been listening to him since I was a kid, for sure. Wonderful. I'm a little bit envious that you got to hear and, and meet some of these really important musicians. If back then, there's uh, a lot of these people were still around. There was, uh, uh, I, I, my brain doesn't bring up names so well. There's Skip James and, uh, who was it? He did the Panama special. He had played a national guitar. He would toss it around and beat on the guitar. Just incredible. I never realized he was as good as he was until I saw him in New York. To Big Joe Williams. Although when I met him, he was cooking the fried chicken dinner. <laughs> Victorious Vivi was there. Uh, big group of uh at mark silver shop uh, upstairs he, mark was great he just took me upstairs to be part of this and uh oh i wish i could remember all the initiative looked them up before we started talking such a great time to be in growing up and into music and in, in new york there and this is the it's funny david grisman calls it the, the folk scare of this <laughs> But it's, uh, he was living in Patterson, New Jersey, and he'd come to the shop. Mark's shop was the Folklore Center, where the Fretted Instruments shop on, in the village was a real meeting place. I met a lot of players from the West Coast as well who came through. Jody Stecker from Brooklyn was there a lot. I got met him, and these were the older guys. I was the young guy. There's, there's, no, there's nothing like so, that. Now, your, your shop is the closest thing that we have to that. Now, when I was there the other day, I just couldn't believe all the people. Guitarist, gypsy guitarist from Brazil, Matt Moon, right. David Grisman's son filling in there. It's just, wow. It's just, this is the gathering place. It's probably just the influence of having spent all the time at, in the village at that shop that it's why my shop, that's how I want it to be. 
it doesn't make money, maybe, but we have a good time. I mean, just sitting there with Matt and playing his stuff. It's like I did with Mark back then. He's a wonderful musician, but he was shy in those days. So I'd come into the store and say, well, I found this guitar. Look at this neat old guitar. And I'd give it to Mark and he'd start playing and I could stare and absorb as much as I could. I just get, just to get him playing. Yeah, sure. Uh, it's a great thing to be a part of the tradition. It's, back then it just um, seemed it was so much more rare and, and new. And now it's, you go to a guitar center and a lot of these names, the young people that work there wouldn't know, but occasionally you will talk to somebody that knows their guitar history and knows about guitar Another presence in New York that was amazing, if you think about it, it was Reverend Gary Davis. And he, he used to play at a little club in the village every Tuesday night. I remember going there and just two of us in the audience. And he's just sitting there playing all night. He's just beautiful. Why only two people in the audience? It was just a little club, one of the little coffee houses in the village every Tuesday night. I don't know why. A lot of the serious players in New York, learners, took lessons from Gary Davis. So there's a lot of great guitar music that we, of people around now, that came directly from those lessons. I was, like I saying, I was too shy to do that, but I saw him a lot. And he's much more of a musician than you realize. Some of the songs he wrote, and he's singing with a lot of sus chords, and it was beautiful melodies. That guitar part that he was like had some stuff like Wine Lemon Jefferson, where he could he'd be doing two rhythms at the same time, like a cross rhythmic thing. That Wine Lemon, he would be singing in one rhythm and playing in another. I mean, it was very. These guys were. And I, Gary Davis was harmonically complex. So it sounds he like... You realize it then, but that stuff goes in your ear. Far from being musically um, simple, they, they were actually, in their own way, um, remarkably sophisticated musicians who had, who had a grasp of music and, and understood what they were doing. It wasn't just a, um, a low-level thing. People, people don't understand that. I'm glad you, for you to set the record straight the name Gary Davis is um, it's pretty immortal to this day. People still oh, talk yeah. about him a lot. I must confess that I have heard him, but I haven't listened extensively to him. Next time we get together, I can play some certain tunes for you. I mean, I'm the, not me playing. I'll, I can run some cuts by you. And I think, I think you'll be surprised. And this was untrained. Musicians like Django, but it's a kind of a, a musical sophistication beyond what we have uh, in educated players. This is a, it came naturally. And so there's a, a beauty and truth to it that doesn't exist so well, I, much. I, I love that. that. That's my <laughs> definition of folk music, by the way, is people who, 
are musicians who did not learn in school. That's definitely me because it's funny. It's I've hired so many young people that just get out of Berkeley or Berkeley. they they come by the droves. They show up for their auditions wearing a coat and tie because they've seen pictures of me wearing a coat and tie. And these kids are, they can transcribe. They know so much, but there's also something to be said for the, and the untrained musician that just follows their own path and their own muse and what they pick up. I think we've lost something with the internet and television, everything where there was once regional styles like dogs mentor and Ralph Rinsler went around with a Nagra type recorder recording regional that's how we discovered doc watson recording these regional folk and blues players the players like gary davis and people who learn their music just from playing they're singers and so their music is melody centered and i i think that has a big is a big part of the quality of their music now you're so you're he was playing in bands with singers always. So it's melody-centered. It's different than the guys who just get together and take a, a standard and take it apart as much as yeah. they can. Yeah, that's a very good point. I, I'm also a lyric person. I'm, I'm big on the storytelling and, and lyric part of it. Now, I noticed that the new trend in bluegrass, we've got a lot of teenage shredders. They play their instruments unbelievably well, but I don't think any of them can match um, Del McCurry, for example, who, who's a great vocalist and, and storyteller. And he's got that credibility factor, and you want to listen to what he's singing about. And nothing against the Young Lions of, of Bluegrass, because it's very impressive when somebody has that kind of technique, especially at a very young age. I think that if when we get back to the singing part and the storytelling part, combining it with the virtuosity, I think that's the way to go. I'll say that one experience, and you're talking about how the store was a gathering place and musicians come through. Noam Pekelny came by. <clears throat> so he's one of those young shredders. Yeah. But he took out, his, his, I asked him about his banjo. He has an amazing banjo and he took it out. And he played some fancy stuff that was incredibly beautiful. And another person, I've been a, a friend of Julian Lodge's since he started coming into the store when he was 11 years old. Wow. And have come into the store every chance they could get. And so there is a shredder, a young guy, but who has, can play incredibly beautifully yeah absolutely some of this is stuff i've heard in the store that maybe you don't hear as much when he's performing these days he's a fan of eddie lang and all those old guys he he can take that stuff and play it so beautifully don't you find that the best musicians are the biggest music lovers? They, they're just into so many different things. And lately I've been on a, you probably think this is hilarious, but I've been on a Rudy Valley kick. I think he was great. And I, I love the, a pretty girl is like a melody. Life is just a bowl of cherries. I'm just interested in that, that earlier music that came before jazz got really far out. Maybe the problem is that we're just old farts. 
<laughs> I've never Large. felt that. I've never felt that way for one second. But <laughs> but, but I, I certainly respect anyone's right to feel that way. A this young guy. He graduated from the conservatory in in San Francisco, and he's coming a number of times, and he is and he's taking lessons from Julian, and he plays unbelievably. I cannot believe what's coming out of his guitar, and he comes in often with other his friends who are also students there. He's graduated now, but. It's beautiful. Eric, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. You're, you were definitely on my the, the top, top of my list for people to uh, have a conversation about music and guitars. A lot of fun. I and mean, it's just like all our conversation. We just sit here talk and we get together at the store or wherever. And it's just the, the same as today. This is George Cole with our show wrap-up. I'd like to thank Source Network Production with executive producer Mark Miller and production support from Pokey Huang. Also on this end, tech support from Sheila Swift. Signing off, and we'll see you next time on the Hot Jazz Network podcast. (laughs) 